What I'd like to talk about this evening is letting go. Um, These are certainly two words that you will hear more than any other words in meditation teaching. You'll be encouraged again and again and again to let go, to let go, to let go. I have a friend who's a meditation teacher and when he was once asked to give instruction, he said, well, you just sit down and you let go. That's what meditation is. And that's all you need to know. There's nothing else you actually need to know. It's very easy to talk about letting go. It's very easy to appreciate the value of letting go. It's certainly um, not so easy to practice. It's said in meditation that the art of living with a liberated heart is the art of letting go. I think it's probably clear that every moment in our lives and every moment in our meditation, when we experience tension, or when we experience conflict, when we experience resistance, that all of those experiences of struggle, whether it is in our relationships with other people, whether it's in our, a struggle in relationship to our own thoughts or feelings, that that struggle tells us something about the need to let go. It's also true that every moment in our lives and every moment in our meditation where we experience a deep degree of openness, where we experience connectedness, where we experience spaciousness and joy, that those moments of happiness and those moments of openness tell us something about the freedom that we've actually found in letting go. The most painful moments in our lives, where we feel burdened by alienation or where we feel burdened by disconnection, that pain speaks to us about the way that we're holding on to things. And the moments of joy, where we've experienced compassion for ourselves, of others, where we've experienced love, where we've experienced a real sense of harmony and attunement. Those moments of joy tell us our own stories about where we've been able to let go. So probably our whole life experience teaches us one simple and very singular lesson that holding and that clinging creates pain and contraction. And that opening and letting go brings happiness and harmony. And I doubt that there's one, that there isn't one area of our lives that we would, wouldn't find greater liberation, greater peace, if we could come to that area of our life with an open heart, with a mind that's not holding, with a mind that is spacious and connected. Renunciation has a very directly to the amount of freedom we experience. Our life experience teaches us this lesson again and again and again and again. 
And intellectually, it's not difficult for us to acknowledge its truth. And in our hearts, we also often find ourselves yearning, longing for the kind of freedom and for the kind of spaciousness that letting go can bring to us. No doubt if we reflect upon a day here, or reflect upon any day in our lives, we can envision what kind of spaciousness that there would be if you didn't identify with anything, if you weren't burdened by any holding or by any clinging, you wouldn't experience the heaviness of mental state, the heaviness of memories or images. And we can envision what kind of spaciousness, what kind of peace that would bring. And yet, no matter how much it is that we long for that kind of freedom, it seems a very hard lesson for us to apply. It's not a hard lesson for us to learn, but it's not an easy lesson for us to apply in our lives. So sometimes we, we feel somewhat lukewarm about letting go. There are moments when we are even perhaps reluctant to practice letting go because of the associations that we have with renunciation with letting go. You know, if you think of a renunciate, someone who's let go of everything, you, know, you probably have these images of some ascetic living in a cave and living off the scraps in the world, you know, and you might admire them, you know, terrific idea, but not feel too inspired to follow in their footsteps. Is that what renunciation means? To turn away from everything, to disconnect? Is that what letting go actually means for us? Sometimes, too, we are afraid of letting go. We are afraid that if we let go, of our props, our identities, our roles, our habits, our routines, that we won't be protected, that we'll be too vulnerable. And we may feel that if we don't have this kind of protection of being something, having something, being someone, then we will leave ourselves simply open to being hurt, to being exploited, or to being oppressed in some way. And because of our associations and our images, I feel it's, it's not always easy to see renunciation as liberating. Sometimes we see renunciation as deprivation, and we dread and fear it. You know, who would I be if I wasn't someone? What would I do? What would you do if we weren't busy with the things they call mine. Would I sink into a kind of marshmallow hanging around on a cushion with no life direction? Would I lose myself? Would I be absorbed by other people? Sometimes it's hard for us to imagine really what it would be like for us just to let go in every moment. We may feel that we lose something that we really, really need. And when we have that fear, then, then at times we sometimes feel we have to negotiate with renunciation. What's it going to cost me? 
it cost me to let go of some object or some routine that I gained a lot of pleasure from? What would it cost me if I wasn't identified with it? What would be the cost of letting go of an identity? What would it cost me to to let go of some routine? And we can sometimes measure the cost. You can say, well, it would cost me some pleasure, it would cost me security, it would cost me safety. And it's not so much the the renunciation or the loss of possessions or the loss of opinions or the loss of the props that frightens us. I think what frightens us much more about letting go is the more intangible reassurance that all these things in our lives seem to offer us. And we feel then that letting go is equivalent with some kind of loss of security and identity. And that reluctance or that fear sometimes creates a reluctance, at times even the inability to let go. And stuck in that ambivalence about renunciation, we find it difficult to let go of things. But clearly, it is no less difficult to hold on to things. We may feel it would be painful to let go of things. But clearly, to live in a way where we are clinging and holding identified brings us enormous amount of pain because then our world and our sense of ourselves is really defined by fear and by holding. If it is, if you, we can never just make a, a resolution in our lives. You know that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and be a renunciate. It doesn't work. I feel to really have any deep sense of the meaning of renunciation, of our capacity to let go. First, we need a little exploration. We need a little inquiry. We need to explore whether it is possible for us inwardly to have a really rather radical shift in our own attitude about letting go. What if it is possible for us to see letting go and renunciation as an act of love and care and compassion for our own well-being? Is it possible for us to see letting go as an act of compassion for the world around us? Is it possible for us to ask ourselves, what would letting go actually offer to us? If we let go of the security, of the demand for pleasure, of the identity of the becoming, what would be offered to us in letting go of all of that? What difference would it make in our lives if we weren't holding on to anything, if we weren't desperately identifying, desperately holding on to anything at all? What kind of happiness or what kind of freedom would that bring? What would our lives be like if we weren't afraid of losing anything? What would our lives be like if we weren't afraid of loss? If we lived in a way where we had a deep and profound trust in our own completeness, our own wholeness, that didn't rely upon any kind of thought, what would it be like to live in a way in which we didn't feel those boundaries? As Zen Master said, 
When my house burnt down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moon at night. It's important for us to look at the different dimensions of our lives that would be transformed by letting go. And we don't really have to look very far to see where renunciation applies. We just need to begin to look at the areas that we find ourselves limited by holding. At any area of our lives where we find that clinging is bringing pain, right now, whether it's the thoughts, whether it's the memories, whether it's the images, whether it's the desires, today, is to look at any area where clinging has actually brought pain, where it has brought tension or where it has brought struggle. One of the areas that really stands out probably for all of us in terms of holding is in relationship to the world of objects, of people. None of us are monastics at this point. You may have aspirations in that direction. But at this point, none of us are monastics, which means that we live in a world of objects, a world of relationships, a world of the possibility of many possessions. And each one of us is called upon to form a relationship with that world. We have to. We are alive. We are a participant in the world. We are called upon to form a relationship with the world of objects and of people. It can be a relationship which is ecologically balanced, which is wholesome. It can also be the opposite. We all have the possibility of forming a relationship which is unbalanced, which is unwholesome. Certainly we live in a culture that promotes the unwholesome. We live in a culture where our success, our security as a person, is in some way measured by the number of things we can call mine. That is what success means in our society. And we very easily learn to subscribe to that myth. Con unconsciously, we're often just sucked into it and follow them the path of accumulation and the path of holding. The problem is not so much with the things, but the ways in which we learn to define ourselves by what we have and the fear that then we then carry with us around loss. Certainly and clearly it's a path that undermines our own well-being. It's clearly a path that undermines the well-being of our world. As Gandhi said, there is enough in this world for everyone's needs, but there is not enough in this world for everyone's greed. Again, our investment and holding is really not just about the things that we have, but things, having, comes to represent power, comes to represent security and control. But to follow that path, is to follow the path of disconnection. Disconnection from ourselves, disconnected from our capacity to feel, disconnected from the plight of the world around us. And it will be important to ask ourselves, are we really made any freer 
or any hatia in a relationship that's governed by insecurity and by incompleteness? Or are we made instead more fearful, more controlling, and more limited? And what does it even mean to live in a wholesome relationship, an ecologically balanced relationship to the world and ourselves? It does mean following a path of connectedness. It doesn't mean necessarily that we have to retreat to the nearest cave or that we have to pack our belongings up in boxes and take them to Oxfam. This is not necessarily what a path of connectedness means, although certainly a path of connectedness does imply renunciation of greed. It does mean restraint. Looking to where we are a consumer at the sense door. Because to follow a path of disconnection where we rely upon consumption for security or happiness is really not to be anything other than a kind of beggar at the sense door. We might also explore how much we give. How much do we actually give in our lives? And that doesn't necessarily mean how much do we give away, because that is the easier path. But how much do we give of time, of patience, of support, of compassion, of understanding, of love? How much time do we make in our lives to actually give? And we have a wonderful place to practice giving. Yourself. Not as a kind of self-obsessive kind of care. But isn't it so too that the degree to which we are able to give to ourselves, to give space, to allow, to be generous, to be patient, is also the degree to which we can give to others. And isn't it also true that as we learn to give to others, we appreciate how much we can be enriched and grow through that same giving. It is an important question to ask of ourselves. The path of connectedness is exploring our own willingness to let go of contraction, of holding, of grasping, and to explore what kind of freedom actually comes through that letting go. The story of a rabbi in Poland very, very famous for his saintliness and kindness and compassion. And this is no insult to Americans. But one day, an American tourist turned up in the town where he lived. Saying, I want to see this rabbi. And he already expected some grand building. Instead, he was directed down this back alley to this little street and this little door. There was no kind of reception area. You know, there was no sign. He knocked on the door and he was invited. This little elderly guy appeared at the door and he said, come to see the rabbi. And the guy says, I'm the rabbi. You know, please come into my home. And they brought him into this home, which was just a simple room, really not much else but a table and a bed books and shells. And this American said, but Rabbi, you know, where I come from, everybody knows about you. You're famous. Where's all your things? 
I knew that by that time. Where are your things? And the American tells her, well, you know, I'm just a visitor here. Why would I have all these things? And that I said, I'm also just a visitor here. <laughs> that kind of freedom, that kind of freedom is something that warms our heart. It is something we respond to. We can appreciate that kind of simplicity and that kind of freedom of really not being bound. In looking at letting go, another area to look at is the area of personal space and territory. This is a very interesting one for you probably experienced a few feelings about it here at Gaia House where you don't always have so much control, it seems, over your personal space and your personal territory. And personal space and territory is often something that's very important to us in our lives. It gives us a great sense of control when we can say that this is my space, this is my territory. And in a retreat, we get a kind of microcosmic view of our own relationship to personal space and the way in which we hold on to it. People often find when they come into a retreat that the very first thing that they're doing is drawing invisible lines. If this is my sitting space, here you have a little cushion to define it, this is my walking space, my eating space, in your rooms, now your rooms, the invisible lines that are often drawn that are a little less invisible, you know, as we lay out our lines of belonging. This is my space. And sometimes it feels very important for us to do this. It's interesting to note also that we, we really often expect that our invisible lines are going to be respected and observed by others, even though they haven't been informed about them. We somehow assume that everyone else can see the lines that we've drawn. And we don't often even not so conscious that we've drawn those lines until someone's blanket strays onto our territory or someone walks in our sacred walking path or someone, you know, sits beside us, coughs and sneezes, my quietness, my personal space has somehow been, been violated by someone else. And how do we respond when our expectations are not upheld? I mean, this is interesting to look at, not only on a retreat, but elsewhere in our lives. How do we respond when our expectations are not upheld by others? how often we feel invaded and threatened, how often our own feeling of security and identity is suddenly challenged, you know, and the many feelings that arise, anger, judgment, resentment, not only here, but elsewhere. We're experiencing the disappointment, the frustration of not being able to preserve what I have, what my space is, 
We sometimes see that we don't actually have personal space. Instead, we tend to be much more imprisoned by the idea of personal space. And there's, there's a group of uh, people who work in animal protection. They, they, wrote this, they wrote this report of how they, they were moving tigers from an area where they were endangered because of drought and poachers. And they were trying to move them to an area where there was plenty of, plenty of um, game and food and protection. And in order to move the tigers, they would, they would have to shoot them with a tranquilizer dart. And then when they were asleep, they would put them in a cage and they would airlift them to this new home. And the biggest difficulty was not getting the tigers into the cage. The biggest difficulty was getting the tiger out of the cage. But when the tiger would arrive at this new place, you know, they would open their eyes, they'd wake up, you know, look terrific, you know, like a nice place to be. And yet the tiger would hold on to the cage. The bars would be open, the gate would be open, the tiger could just walk out and be free. And yet it would be life-threatening to try and tempt a tiger out of the cage. It would become what I knew. It became what they knew, what was familiar to them. And the unfamiliar then was totally threatening. And isn't this often also so true for us? That somehow the familiar, what we know, what we what we've become familiar with, whether it's an identity, whether it's a routine, whether it's a lifestyle, whether it's a relationship, even if it is painful for us or somehow limiting for us, it can be so difficult to make that step to walk out and to let it go. Because somehow we don't know what's on the other side of that line. And there's no guarantees and there's no promises, no matter how enticing it might look. There's no guarantees that if we cross that line, really, of what we will find there. And for us, too, it is often so difficult for us just to let go of what is familiar, even when that may be limiting and difficult for us. It's not this kind of protection and this kind of holding, of course, it's not always the case in our lives. It doesn't always happen. This, these kind of areas of control around personal space is not always the case in our lives. We probably all find that there's been times in our lives when we've really been able to accommodate the unpredictable, the disturbing, the threatening, the unknown, with a great deal of openness and a great deal of compassion. And what is happening in those moments? What makes it possible for us to do that? It's not always a question of, yeah, yes, I can, of how much room we have or how much space we have or how many guarantees we have or how undisturbed we feel. Really what is inner space? What is inner space that allows us to accommodate the unpredictable and the challenging? When we feel at home within ourselves, when we know ourselves deeply, 
when we feel at peace within ourselves, when we feel connected inwardly and open to our own changing feelings and thoughts without reaction, without holding. There's very little in the world that seems to sadden us. We seem to find that peace everywhere. The opposite is also true. You know when you feel disturbed within yourself, everything in the world seems to be evidence that proves that all is wrong. When we have met our own demons, there's very little in the world that overwhelms us. That is what inner space is all about. That capacity to accommodate. That capacity to embrace. Out of that comes an immense degree of space that allows us to move freely in the world, whether we're in a crowd, whether we're with other people, or whether we're alone. We can move freely with peace and with compassion. It's not, I feel, a question that we have to wait for this inner spaciousness to happen to us. You know, maybe we'll get lucky this week and we'll have some inner space. Then there's a question of waiting for spaciousness to happen. If you're much more, this practice is concerned with consciously extending our boundaries, consciously exploring what it means to be in a way where we're not defined by mine and by yours, where our boundaries are not defined by I have, I don't have, where our boundaries are not defined by fear. Instead of holding, learning how to open into what is. Open into what is actually present within, within every moment. This is often not what we do. Instead, we, we learn to equate security with creating an unchanging and fixed center in the midst of change. This is how we learn to control the world, the outer world and the inner world. So I know this is how we have learned to create a feeling of safety by trying to create a center that doesn't change. And what is that center? That center is our opinions, our beliefs, what I have, what I call mine, my beliefs about myself. That is how we've been accustomed to creating safety. What happens when we don't try and create that center? When we don't try and create anything which is unchanging, which is a reference point for everything else? It means that we learn to be present unconditionally. To be present unconditionally requires an enormous amount of trust an enormous amount of trust in ourselves to be present unconditionally. And that is what peace is. Peace is not the absence of challenge, the absence of the disturbing. Peace is not some sort of little airy-fairy kind of fanciful place, you know, where, where everything's nice and acceptable and, you know, you're surrounded by lovely people and you've got the perfect environment and, you know, everything's going smoothly. That's not peace. Peace is not the absence of the disturbing. Peace is in our capacity to be with what is without prejudice. 
without judgment, without creating a center, because then we have no separation. There is simply that attunement and that connection with what is in every moment. To be with what is without prejudice. That's really learning to let go of that center. To reach of this wonderful poem about the empty boat. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, even though he is a very bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout's not heard, he will shout again and yet again and begin cursing, and all because there's somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he wouldn't be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. As many times we find ourselves standing up on our boat shouting at somebody else's boat. Or shouting at our own boats because they're not working right. There's many times in our lives where we hear the whispers and the shouts of our judgments that tell us about the world and tell us about ourselves in endless detail. And those judgments govern how we respond. The voice of the critic, the voice of the inner judge, we've all heard it, perhaps only occasionally, perhaps it's always there in the background. It governs our responses not only to others, but to ourselves too. And what kind of responses do we find are born of the judge and the critic? Anger, denial, disconnection, separation, rejection. Does the judge or the critic ever bring us closer to anything or to anyone? Does the voice of the judge or the critic ever lead to a deepening and understanding and openness or connectedness? Or does the voice of the judge and the critic not always lead to separation and to division? And our judgments, no doubt, are born of fear, of afraid, being afraid to be with things. Our judgments are a kind of defender of the holding mind. Judgment is not something we work out. It's certainly not something that it's any wisdom in suppressing. I think it is far wiser for us to see if we can learn the lessons of our judgment. Because our judgments teach us a lesson again and again. Our judgments teach us a lesson. But all of those commands and all of those creating of separation and rejection brings pain. And our judgments teach us a lesson about letting go. That if we let go of the voice of the judge and the critic, we experience instead the response of compassion, which is so liberating. Letting go is not a destination. It's not something you arrive at in the future after you've got good at sitting. 
you know, or after you've clocked in a certain required number of meditation hours. You know, you can ask anybody who's done, you know, a hundred retreats, whether they got progressively better at letting go through those retreats. They would probably say no. Letting go doesn't actually have anything to do with time. That's an interesting kind of prospect for us. Letting go doesn't actually have anything to do with getting better at meditation. Letting go doesn't have anything to do with what kind of spiritual credentials we have. Letting go only has something to do with our relationship with right now. Non-dwelling is the greatest art of the spiritual life. In a way, it's the application of liberation. Just as dwelling is the practice of limitation. Now, we probably find in a day that we dwell upon many things. We dwell upon the past, we dwell upon the future, we dwell upon the present, we dwell upon our thoughts and our fantasies and our projections. This dwelling is a way of constructing a world. You know, it's like, I'll give you an example of dwelling. You know, you have a sensation in your knee at the beginning of a sitting. And your mind acknowledges it, you know, with a sudden apprehension. Uh Aha, it's unpleasant, it's painful. You return to it again and you return to that label again. It's getting worse. It might get really a lot worse. You know, I could end up crippled. I could end up in a wheelchair. I wonder where the nearest hospital is. Pretty soon you're sitting there on the cushion outwardly. You look terrific, you know, relaxed, calm. Inwardly there's this nightmare going on where you've convinced yourself of what damage you've done. Of course, the opposite arises too. You know, you have a moment of calm. You know, a great voice of glee greets this moment of calm. You know, aha, finally I'm getting somewhere. I laughed, you know, I had a breakthrough. I've heard about breakthroughs, I've had one. This is a breakthrough, you know. And the mind returns to it. Now, well, what will happen with this breakthrough? Well, you know, maybe I ought to sign up for that retreat in November, it's a month, you know. You know, I wonder, you know, maybe next time, you know, next thing I ought to sit for an hour and a half, you know. I wonder if anybody else notices how well I'm doing here, you know. And the whole mind constructs this, this world. Now, those are only examples. That is the example of dwelling. Dwelling is that repeated turning of attention to a thought, to a feeling, to an image. The more that the attention is returned and the more holding that there is around that process, the more that process of construction becomes a reality. This is the truth. This is what is. Now, as the mind returns and builds up this construction, it contracts, it shrinks around that process, it contracts around it. Um, you know, it's like putting a piece of cellophane around something, it sticks to it, it con- the mind contracts around it, and it becomes real. The more the mind contracts, the more it loses a sense of vision or any sense of perspective, any sense of vastness. Rather, it is imprisoned within this construction which has come to be reality. That is the process of dwelling. Dwelling is a habit. 
Dwelling is a habit at times, just like judgment is at times a habit. Dwelling also has to do, of course, with an absence of mindfulness, that we are not really present, that we are not connecting. Often dwelling has to do with fear or the desire for pleasure. Those are the two most powerful forces that give dwelling momentum. We become a prisoner of what we dwell upon. There is really no freedom within it. But again, the good news is that it's not a life sentence. Does anyone ever say you're always going to be without mindfulness in our life? Of course not. We experience that's not true. We experience that the, the transformation of consciousness has to do with the quality of our attention, has to do with the quality of our presence, has to do with the quality of our connection. This is what transformation has to do with. This is also what letting go has to do with. It doesn't have anything to do with time. It has to do with how present we are, how much sensitivity we bring how much clarity and compassion we bring to being present, how much, how conscious and awake we are in this moment. That sense of being conscious and connected, it also has its own fuel. Just as dwelling and imprisoned, being imprisoned by dwelling has the fuel of fear and the desire for, ple- for pleasure. Letting go also has its own fuel. It's, it's given power. And letting go is given power actually by love. By commitment to our own well-being, to the well-being of our world. By caring for the quality of our own inner being, the quality of our world. That is the fuel for letting go, that quality of compassion. Because letting go always creates allowing, creates space, allows us to be, is a gesture of generosity towards all things. Discovering the art of non-dwelling is really one of the greatest skills in meditation. But it must always come from that place of care and from love, not out of fear and not out of suppression. Because the letting go that comes that is an act of compassion is the letting go that's really liberating, that really frees us and allows us to deepen in wisdom. Discovering the art of non-dwelling is also to discover the art of awareness and the art of silence. And this is what the path of meditation is all about. It's really learning to live in the spirit of freedom. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings Live with spaciousness. May all beings live with compassion. <laughs>